This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought... In that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. On the 20th of October, 1650, Christina Vasa was crowned King of Sweden. Born in 1626, she'd actually been King since 1632 and had ruled in her own right after her majority since 1644. And only a few years after her coronation, she abdicated. Christina was one of the most learned women of the 17th century. She never married. And having converted to Roman Catholicism after her abdication, she's one of the few women to be buried in the Vatican. Doesn't she sound fascinating? So to discuss this extraordinary woman, and indeed how a woman became King of Sweden, I'm delighted to be joined by Julia Holm. Julia Holm wrote her master's thesis on the sartorial politics of Christina of Sweden and published it in a fascinating essay called How to Dress a Female King, Manifestations of Gender and Power in the Wardrobe of Christina of Sweden in the book Sartorial Politics at European Courts, which was edited by Erin Griffey. Julia is a museum researcher and lecturer in textile history at Lund and Uppsala universities, and she's completing her PhD at the latter. Julia, welcome to Not Just the Tudors. I'm really excited to talk with you about how a woman was crowned King of Sweden in 1650 and how she legitimised herself as king. But perhaps we should back up a bit for those who aren't very familiar with Sweden in the 17th century. Can you give us some context? Tell us what we should know about Sweden at this time. Oh, absolutely. And thank you so much for letting me be here. Sweden at the 17th century had gone from a very small country up in the edges of Europe, in the cold north, to become one of the major power players in just a couple of decades. And it was quite a small country compared to England or France, for example. We had only about 1.2 million inhabitants and we were spread out. We also had a very small nobility compared to England and France and Germany and so on. But through the Thirty Years' War, Sweden grew exponentially quite large. And Sweden has also been monarchy in that sense for only about just a little more than 100 years. Of course, we had kings before that, but we had a different system. They were 
in some capacity elected. And in the early 16th century, we adopted this paternal through kingship. So the Swedish monarchy was quite young, only about 100 years. And it has been the same family line for all that time, the Vasa family. It was quite religious. It was Protestant. And that was why the great 30 years war was fought. And Christina's father, the king Gustavus Adolphus, was one of the great fighters on the Protestant side. It was very important to him to save Protestantism, if you want to call it that. So that was why we fought. It was also quite religious and very hierarchical, so there was a very fixed idea on what position in society you had, if you were a woman or a man, or if you were highborn or a farmer and so on, and you were supposed to stay at your position, you were supposed to show your position with your clothing and your actions and so on. People were supposed to be able to identify just looking at you, and you weren't supposed to jump around in this, and you weren't supposed to cross the boundaries, because that was just seen a bit weird and not something you were supposed to do. The order of things were given from God, or so they thought, so that was a very important thing to keep up. So into the midst of this very gendered, very hierarchical society, we have a woman becoming king. We'll come back to that in a second. But yes. tell us a bit about her first. Christina Vasa, who was she and how was she brought up? She was born in Stockholm in 1626 as the only living child to Gustavus Adolphus and Maria Eleonora of Brandenburg. They had been married for about six years when she was born and they had a series of miscarriages and a stillborn child and so on. And she was the living one. And her birth was surrounded by misconceptions and very high expectations of getting a male heir. So there was some confusion when she was born. Her father, Gustavus Adolphus, died when she was only six years old in 1632. And then she became the regent under guardianship. He fought ahead, so to speak. When she was younger and he was still alive, he thought the possibility that there might not be any male heirs. And because of all the miscarriages, and he was also gone in the wars so much, so there just wasn't any time to make new heirs, so to speak. And they wanted to keep the royal power in the Vasa family line, and that was very important. So he made sure that the constitution supported Christina as his heir. And she was also brought up to be the heir of the throne. In some texts you can find ideas that she would have been brought up to be a boy, and that's not quite the truth. She had a boy's education because there was no female equivalent for bringing up an heir. They were just supposed to be males, so they just had to adapt that kind of education for a female. Females instead, during that time, would have been brought up to be good mothers and good wives and so on. And that wasn't the important bit when it came to Christina. So she learned rhetorics and languages and philosophy and so on. Apparently she liked horse riding and that's who she was when she was a child. Given that you're saying she liked horse riding, she was active, do we have a sense of who she was, what she was like? She seems to have been quite headstrong and, and strong-willed and have a very determined personality to be able to rule Sweden. It seems like she was, from quite a young age, determined to actually be this person, to actually be this good heir and to fill up the throne, so to speak. And that seems to be supported by sources when she became an adult. You couldn't just sweep her aside or talk over her. She would have had her opinion known. And was her accession contested at all, or was her position in the Vasa family significantly important for no one to think that it mattered that she wasn't male? 
No, it wasn't an easy decision. Of course, they wanted a male heir. And of course, there were fractions within government who would have rather had someone else's. And, and they, in some way, tried to make that happen, tried to make her legitimate heir, claim to the throne illegitimized because she was a woman. So it would have been very important to her to make sure that everyone perceived her as the legitimate heir, despite being a woman and the only solution. But of course, there would have been people who would have said otherwise. We had only male heirs on the Vasa family line for over 100 years. Having a woman during the mid-17th century wouldn't have been that easy of a decision for them. But she seems to have been the best option and she seems to have had some kind of strong support, possibly because her father, Gustavus Adolphus, laid the groundwork and made sure that the constitution supported her beforehand. She wasn't just thrown into it from the side, but rather something that was worked on for several years. When she was a child, she didn't become king immediately. She became regent under guardianship. She had a guardian and government ruled through her, but she seems to have taken an active role in that, sitting on the council meetings and so on. And that also says something about her personality, I think, that she took this very seriously. And so she was crowned in October 1650, but she had actually become king some six years earlier, hadn't she? Why was the coronation delayed? If you want a big-scale European wedding with all the important guests and all the swag, so to speak, it takes time to sort that out. And also, when she was coming of age in 1644, there was still lots of war going on in Europe, and Sweden was heavily involved in a lot of them, and it wasn't just as easy to put on a coronation. Still, she became the monarch because they needed someone to actually fill up the title, so to speak, but to put on the ceremonial part of the things, they could take their time. And it wasn't that unusual, actually, during the time. Coronation seems to have been put in place a couple of years after people actually becoming kings. So it took time. You needed to invite guests and people needed to travel. And she wanted this big-scale European coronation to be able to invite important guests from different parts of Europe. And she wanted really to be able to create a sort of cultural hub up here in the north to be able to recreate the Swedish court, who had up to then been quite small and stuffy and backwards. And she wanted to have a Paris in Sweden, so to speak, this culture, this place where artists and brilliant people of all parts of the world came to be and so on. And her coronation would have been a very great occasion to put that off. That's why it took time, because you wanted to be able to make sure that people had the time and the possibility to get to Sweden. And then they had the time and the money and the possibility to get the right atmosphere during the coronation. So that makes lots of sense. She wants to do it properly. And so it doesn't matter if it takes time, because the coronation is not synonymous with being the ruler. But when it's going to happen, it's going to be done with the necessary pomp. It's going to be done with the right fabrics and material and the right people present. Yes. And it was so very important that it got done properly because the coronation was this ceremonial part in the kingship where she formally said to all of the people that God gave me this power and the legitimized heir. I'm the king of Sweden now. So it had to be done right. It had to be done in a way that no one could object to it. So let's come to this question of her title, because this is just fascinating. Why was Christina crowned king and not queen? The king is a job title. The constitution wouldn't support a queen to rule Sweden. You had to have a king. 
but didn't say anything about her having to be male. So that's why she was crowned king and not queen. The queen was not a job title. It was the wife of the male king, but she wasn't that. She was going to be crowned king. The queen couldn't have ruled. It's just so useful, a way of thinking about it, because in English we talk about queen's regnant and queen's consort, but that means you have the same title for Elizabeth I and Victoria and Elizabeth II as you have for all of the queens who were married to Henry Mm. VIII, and yet these are two very different positions. (laughs) So it's actually a very useful way of thinking about it. Yeah, it is. Christina was the exception. I don't think that our present monarch is a king, but his daughter will take over when he retires, Princess Victoria. I don't think that she will be King Victoria. I think that she will be Queen Victoria. So I think it's quite something that only was applied to Christina. But it was very clever of them to use it that way, yeah, definitely. Aeroplanes, spacesuits, condoms, coffee, plastic surgery, warships. Over on the patented podcast by History Hit, we bring you the fascinating stories of history's most impactful inventions and the people who claim these ideas as their own. We uncover exceptional stories behind everyday objects. We managed to put two men on the moon before we put wheels on suitcases. Unpack invention myths. So the prince's widow immediately becomes certain. Thomas Edison stole her husband's invention and her husband disappeared around the same time, can only have been eliminated by Thomas Edison, who at the time is arguably the most famous person in the West. And look backwards to understand technologies that are still in progress. You know, when people turn around to me and say, oh, why would you want to live forever? Life's rubbish. I just think that's a bit sad. I think it's a worthwhile thing to do. And the thing that really makes it worthwhile is the fact that you could make it go on forever. So subscribe to Patented from History Hit on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts to catch new episodes every Wednesday and Sunday. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought... In that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This 
is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Now, because she was crowned king... I think there seems to be lots of ways in which she has been thought about as not being quite a woman. And your research is really interesting because it looks at ways in which her clothing explores this idea of how she's diverging from 17th century concepts of gender and power. Let's talk a bit about her clothes. First of all, what sort of sources do we have? I would have loved to say that we have a wardrobe full of clothes left from her, but we have one piece of garment, and that's her coronation cloak. Unfortunately, she seems to have taken a lot of things to Rome when she abdicated, and the rest is just lost in time. But there are great archival materials for Christina. There are a lot of accounts from the royal wardrobe, who was the function at court, who manages her clothing. They were sewing stuff and they were buying things and they were mending and changing and deciding how her clothes would be made. And the accounts from these times are quite precise. They write everything down. They write down, if they give someone sewing thread, they write that down. Not exactly how much, but they write down that this person gets some sewing thread. So it's very detailed. And when it's so very detailed, we can look at the detail and pick them together. I can see what kind of clothing she was wearing and when, because it's all dated. So I can see what time of the year she got a new gown or new bodice and so on. And I can see what kind of materials and how much everything costs and what colors and what kind of decoration. So even if we don't have the actual pieces of clothing, we can still get a pretty good idea on how her wardrobe was functioning. And a lot of these archives from these 10 years, from 1644 when she was coming of age and becoming the king of Sweden and to 1654 when she abdicated, are still there. So you can get the whole story more or less. So she was 18, is that right? Yeah, she was 18. It's amazing. A young woman all of this time when she's crowned and even when she abdicates, she's still in her 20s. Yeah, it's so easy to forget that she was so young, really. So thinking a bit more about clothes, I guess if we're going to understand their significance, we first of all need to have a primer from you on (laughs) what women wore in Sweden at this time. What did clothing consist of? Absolutely. The undergarments, she would have worn some undergarments called linen. It would have been clothing consistent of linen material because it was what you wore closest to the body. It was easy to wash and it was the basics. It would have been a shift. Over that, she would have worn what we call, and I will use the Swedish terms here because these pieces of clothing are not exactly equivalent to the English ones. So I will still use the Swedish terms, but I will try to explain what everything is. And another short list of bodies that with attachable sleeves that's attached to an open skirt. So it's in today's term called the dress, and that would be like the overgarment, that would be what in portraits and so on. Together with that, she would wear sort of an underskjortel or waistskirt that would show in the front where the overskjortel was open, and that would be matched to the overskjortel. So they were worn as a suit of clothing, as a set. Sort of, you wouldn't just mix and match if you felt like it, you would use them as a set. And the bodies of the overskjortel would be quite heavily boned. You can see the baleen whale bones in it are are used quite a lot of that and they're also consisted of quite a lot of uh, layers of fabric so they would have been quite stiff it would have been not an armor but it would have been quite 
heavy set and it's up to date with fashion in Europe at the time. The sleeves could be attachable at the shoulders and they would have been this kind of round ones. Then these big skirts that went almost all the way down to the floor. The clothing would have been made in, uh, well, there's quite a lot of different materials in the counts, but mainly expensive silk velvets or silk taftas or expensive woolen qualities and so on. And you can see that the more expensive ones and the more everyday, of course. More or less all the pieces of clothing would be decorated with yards and yards of of bobbin lace, mainly in gold and silver. And there would have been so much (laughs) of these laces on this piece of clothing, according to the counts. She would also have worn stockings, possibly knitted silk stockings and gloves of various kinds. And she seems to have gone through quite a lot of both of these because there's quite a lot in the accounts that keep buying them by bulk, more or less. Sometimes you can see that she just gave her 20 pairs or something like that. And sometimes they seem to have dyed it to match the overshortel and sometimes it's just a neutral color and so on. And something that was quite fashionable during the time was these bows or sets of various kinds of ribbons and laces and so on, and which called favorer in the counts, kind of a la petite doy in French, which was this bows where you would attach to everything, like on the hat and on the shoes and on the stockings and on the sleeves and on the bodies. And if you could fit the <laughs> bow in somewhere, you would. And both men and women wore these and were quite fashionable at the time. There are also some outer clothing in these accounts for when she went horse riding and traveling and so on, like coats and jackets and so on, that clothing that obviously for outdoors activities. There would also have been some hats, and that's something that is a bit up to discussion because it's not very common to see women in hats in the portraiture during the time. But I think it's very hard to really pinpoint if this is something that's very normal for just Christina, or if it's something that was a part of the Swedish fashion context during the time, because we have to remember that we know very little about other women in Sweden at the time. So I can compare it to fashionable women in the rest of Europe, but Sweden wasn't the rest of Europe. Sweden was its own kind of small context. And fashion-wise, we tend to see Scandinavian fashion through history being about 20 to 50 years after what's happening in the rest of Europe. And also there's always the chance of geographical specialities and so on. I think that's a question that's really hard to answer. In some texts, the hats are used to emphasize her manliness and so on. I'm not really sure. And I don't think that question can be fully answered until we have more research on other highborn women in Scandinavia. Yes, that really makes sense. So we could conclude that Christina wears hats and no one else does because... We don't have portraits of other women with hats, but it could just be that you didn't wear a hat in a portrait. Exactly. And we have a lot of portraits of Christina, so we can see a lot of her various clothing. But for most other women during the time, maybe they got a portrait painted like once in their lifetime. So we actually don't know that much. And I think that's an area where more research needs to be done to be able to actually pinpoint if this is something that's off the chart or something that's normal for her. It's your argument that what she chose to wear, her sartorial strategies, were crucial to seeing herself as a legitimate king of Sweden, despite being a woman. Her father, Gustavus Adolphus, was known as you know the Lion of the North, the great warrior king. His whole image, so to speak, was that he was this warrior who was always out in war and was leading battles. And she was a woman, she just couldn't do that. She had to be the monarch of something else if she wanted to create this great court. She had to emphasize culture, uh, something like that instead. 
And clothing comes in as a big part of that and as fashion as well. She needed to be able to present a persona that was in time with what was worn in Paris, for example, and the rest of Europe to be able to show that we're not just this uh, old-fashioned backwards weirdos up here in the north. We're actually a part of Europe and we actually, we're presenting all this fashionability and this modernity in that kind of sense. And so I think it would have been very important for her. And I can see through the accounts during those 10 years of her monarchy that she adapted to this. You can see when she had to get a new wardrobe in the beginning of her monarchy, you can see that she buys a lot of clothes and then up to the coronation, she buys a lot of clothes. And then there are some years where nothing really happens and it's not so important. And you have also these occasions where she adopts new fashions, like in 1647, she suddenly decides to incorporate a new piece of clothing in a wardrobe called uh, Nattskjortel, which is like this overgown, the Överskjortel, I've talked about before, but seems to be a bit of a new fashion because the tailor doesn't really know how to make one. I can tell that by he's making a mock-up first, so he, he has to try one out and see that this really works and it really fits. And then he can go on to make the actual one. And she adopts these fashions and she tries to sort of change her clothing to present this persona of a legitimized heir. So tell us about what she wore for her coronation and does this have anything to tell us about her status or her approach? Oh absolutely and this is another example of her using the territorial politics to legitimize herself and present herself. The coronation gown cloak is this magnificent purple silk velvet thing that you can still see on the Royal Armoury in Stockholm. It's embroidered with gold crowns and it's in line with what previous Swedish monarchs had had. She could have used her father's, but she chose to order one from Paris instead to really get a new one. In addition to that, she would have worn some kind of silver and white gowns. And this is a part where it gets tricky because these specific records are lost. So I can't find the exact records for her coronation gown. We know that was ordered from Paris and from eyewitness account from the actual coronation day we can tell that it was Pöbeschortel and Undeschortel, the, the overgown and the waist skirt and it was made in white and silver and that was also in, in accordance to what previous monarchs would have worn on their coronation day. They would also wear white and silver clothing so she adapted as much as she could and she would have worn a crown of course, becoming a king, you need a crown. And there she had a choice. She could have chosen her mother's, Maria Eleanor of Brandenburg's crown. And they actually remade it somewhat so that it would fit her becoming a king. But instead, she opted to go for using a king's crown that was made for her ancestor, Eric XIV. And I think that's a very powerful statement to make. Like, I'm not using the female, the queen's crown. I'm using the real king's crown to this. So even if you see me here in a dress, I'm still having the king's crown on my head. It seems to have worked in a way because monarchs after her would still use her coronation cloak. She wouldn't have been accepted as a real king in this. They wouldn't have used that because then it wouldn't have been seen as a piece of regalia that would have been legit. So I think that proves that she made it work. One rumour that goes around about Christina is that she dressed like a man. Is there... Any truth in this? This is a complicated question. In the 10 years worth of accounts that I have been looking through, I haven't found a single piece of garment that is male. There are some items, like the hats, for example, which we simply don't know enough to be able to say it was unisex or if it was 
a bit male or if it was perfectly acceptable for women at the time to wear it. There are some comments, mainly from the time, which says things like, oh, she dresses like a man or she behaves like in this very weird way and so on. And I think a lot of these questions have been misconstrued during the time. What did a 17th century person actually mean by saying, oh, she dresses like a man? Does that mean that she's wearing male clothing or does it mean something else in their context? And... I think it's very important to not take these comments through a modern day lenses, but rather try to understand the time period. If she would have worn male clothing, she wouldn't have been able to rule Sweden. Just according to the gender norms and patriarchal hierarchies at the time, it would have been too weird. It wouldn't have worked at all. But then you have to remember about Christina. She had a quite long and eventful life and... I have looked at the 10 years she was a monarch in Sweden, but she lived on for 30 more years after that. She went to Rome and so on. And there is not very much research done about her clothing habits during these times. Yes, it's interesting, however, that the rumour has arisen. Another rumour about her is about her sexuality, that she has a relationship with one of her ladies-in-waiting. Again, is there much evidence to support this? Or is this, and the suggestion about her clothing, to do with them trying to grapple with a woman in power? Oh, I absolutely think it is. I think a lot of people have not really have an idea on how to handle Christina, how to deal with the fact that she was a woman, but she refused to marry and she gave up the throne. And she seems to still have been taking these 10 years as a monarch very seriously and actually tried to be a very good king. And I think... To be able to do that, she would have to in some way acted or put herself in context that wasn't very common for women. I think that some people maybe at the time didn't know how to deal with it. And I think that certainly people in the history to come haven't known how to deal with it. There are rumours about her sexuality and there are some letters to a female lover that could say that maybe they had a relationship. There are also some evidence that tends to support the idea that she also had male lovers. I think actually one of the things about Christina is that her sexuality, she took that to the grave and only her knows how that was. And I think maybe that's how it should be. Of course, she may well have been in love with this woman at her court and the letters may testify to that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But of course, reading letters of the 16th century and the way affection expressed might well be different from how we understand it today. It's really fascinating. It seems people are trying to understand why a woman would choose not to marry and also have this position as king and having been educated as well as men at the time. She feels like she's escaping categories. Yeah, and I think during history, people have constantly tried to fit her into a box that fits that specific time in the 1800s and the early 1900s as well. And I think all of these occasions when someone has tried to put her in a box, that's very time-specific. But then when historians go back and try to read up on it, they only get this box and it doesn't fit. And then they try to fit her in another box and it doesn't fit. And we have so many of these attempts to get a grip on her. And a lot of them are a bit... Anachronistic. And I think that sort of messes things up. So when you read about Christina today, you have all of these other people's views on her and other people's glasses and eyes and so on to try to understand her instead of just actually looking at the person. In the early, early 1900s, there was uh, ideas that she might have been intersexual or hermaphrodite, as it would have been called at the time. And there was the, the gynecologist called Elis Essen Butler who really 
was a fan of this idea and he wrote this book about her being hermaphrodite because of his interpretation of her and how she was behaving coincided with his patients or somewhat. And there was historians like Sven Stolt who actually took this to her and ran with it and actually went down to Rome and exhumed her just to you know, have a peek under the skirt and see if something else was there or try to figure out if she was intersexual or something like that. But they couldn't find anything. According to the person who did the exhumation investigation, she seemed like a biological woman, and, and that was what they could find out. But I think these are some examples that people just can't get the idea that this woman would become king, refuse to marry, abscond to Rome, and have this very eventful life. I just think they just couldn't fit her in, in a box, and that's why all of that happened. Nothing like a bit of post-mortem upskirting. Yeah, exactly. You've mentioned that she abdicated. So this happened in 1654. She abdicated in favour of her male cousin. Why did she do that? The pressure on her would have been to marry would have been very great. Sweden really needed a male heir. And if she wasn't going to marry, that wouldn't happen. She was brought up to be on the absolute top of Sweden. She wasn't brought up to be subjugated to someone. And according to gender norms at the time, she would have had to subjugate herself to her husband. And I think the common idea is that she just wouldn't have been able to stomach that. She just wouldn't do it. And there have been various theories about this, some that she was very religious because as soon as she had abdicated, she travelled through Europe for a couple of years before that, but she ended up in Rome and she abdicated to Catholicism. It was a huge scandal because her father had fought this huge war to defend Protestantism and his own daughter goes off and, and become a Catholic. But I just think that she realised that she couldn't, she didn't want to marry and then she seemed to have, for the good of the country, she needed to leave it to someone who would and would possibly have the chance to have heirs and that was then the best options were her cousin, Carl X Gustavus. There were talks about her marrying him as well for a period, but she didn't really want to. So what happens to her? She goes off to Rome, she becomes a Catholic. Did she stay single? Do we know anything about her in the remaining 30 years of her life? Oh, she seems to have had a blast, that I can say. <laughs> uh, she seems to have had a very eventful life. She went off to Brussels for when she went from Sweden and then off to France and then after that to Rome. She seems to have had constant money troubles because she brought a lot of things with her, like furniture and art and, and all of her clothing and so much of these things. And we also know that she kind of pawned or sold a lot of them during these travels because she just hadn't enough money to support her own cohort. But... She was very well welcomed in Rome. They were very happy to have her. She was quite a symbol of Catholicism, you know, this Protestant king who converted to Catholicism. She stayed there until her death in 1689. There are rumours about her lovers during this period, as well as there are king of Sweden. And I think, in a way, there are, there are some strong support for her actually taking lovers, but it seems that way. So, but yeah. And... Am I right in thinking that she tried to have herself made Queen of Naples or Queen of Poland? Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, she wasn't done with being king or queen. She had these grand schemes So, well, becoming king of Naples and king of Rome, uh, king of Poland it didn't really work out. But when she was in Rome, she was a, this messenaut of culture. She supported artists and she supported musicians and so on. So she got her fame in another way, I think. And she was the first woman to be able to be buried in the St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. And she seems to have been quite the, the cultural messenger. She supported that all throughout her life. 
I just love the sound of her. I'm now going to add her to my <laughs> fantasy dinner party because I just think she sounds amazing. I really think she would have been an interesting, fiery, brilliant character. I think she would have been a lot of fun to have a dinner with her. <laughs> what has your research on Christina taught you? From my perspective of doing the research on her closing, I think the thing that has stood out most to me is that you have to actually try to put yourself in the context of her time. And I think people often do that, and especially when it comes to closing. I think it's something that's so often just brushed aside as something that's frivolous and not too important. But we still use the comments about her close sort of evidence of her being this and that. But no one actually really looked at what she wore. No one actually tried to figure out, okay, so what's actually in her wardrobe? So listening to you talk about Christina, we've discovered that she's a fabulous person, that she was feisty and gender-defying in such ways that people since have tried to put her into categories of being, I don't know, intersex, dressing like a man, possibly a lesbian, and she may have been any of these things, but... What your research has demonstrated is just how important it is not to follow the rumour, but to follow the facts and to follow the evidence. And you have very neatly demonstrated to us how if you go back to the original accounts, you have far more to go on and you have actually some conclusions that can be reached or not reached in times, but that you can't just continue to perpetuate these myths Yes, exactly. And I think she absolutely was gender-defying in some way, but I don't think she necessarily was gender-defying in the ways that popular culture portrays her to be. Well, Julia, thank you so much for coming on to Not Just the Tudors and telling us about King Christina. And we look forward to seeing more from you in the future. Good luck with your PhD. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for listening to Not Just the Tudors. Take a moment, if you would, to rate the podcast wherever you listen to it, including on Spotify. It really helps new listeners find the show, and we want to spread the Tudor and Not Just the Tudor love. And you can also have your additional weekly booster jab with our Tudor Tuesday newsletter, with news of History Hit's best podcasts, articles, and films. Find out more at historyhit.com. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love. And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.